was thinking as Mr. Derek Lee gave the offertory, it reminded me the scripture in John, the 17th chapter, where Jesus was praying. And they are talking about at one. I think Mr. Lee uh, gave a good summary of the meaning of the day that we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, uh, not only just, of course, for us, but for the world. And we realize that Satan, the devil, is going to be put away for a thousand years. We'll be rehearsing those lessons here in the sermon. But here in John 17 and uh, verse 21, uh, Jesus prayed that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and that the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So God expects that we are going to be one with him in a very special way. Today is the tenth day of the seventh month of God's calendar, the day of Atonement, or in the Hebrew, Yom Kippur. Yesterday's, uh, we thank God for his master plan of salvation. We realize that the festivals and the holy days uh, give us revelation and understanding that the world does not have. The world is so blinded uh, by Satan. The Feast of Tabernacles begins just four days from tonight. And uh, some of our brethren have already traveled to uh, other countries. And... Uh, keeping the Day of Atonement somewhere in some other country. What are some of your memories of the Day of Atonement? Do you have any special memories of the Day of Atonement in the past? I remember a Day of Atonement in 1973. Uh, my wife and I and Grandma Meredith were in Bricketwood, England. Dr. Meredith was Chancellor of the Ambassador College in Bricketwood, England. And on the Day of Atonement, uh, I was assigned to speak in London. So in those days, we had two services on atonement, a morning service on atonement and an afternoon service. I spoke in London uh, that, that day, and then on the afternoon, way back to Brickawood for afternoon services, we were in the car, and the car radio mentioned that Israel had been attacked by Arab nations on two fronts, and that Israel had responded by attacking, uh, counterattacking in Damascus, Syria, and were headed towards Cairo, Egypt. In fact, they basically had won the war. It was 18 days that that happened. So that was called the Yom Kippur War. It was a very uh, memorable incident in, that, that we experienced back in 1973. And then just four years later, uh, Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, had uh, declared, instead of declaring war on Israel, declared peace on Israel and actually had a um, peace treaty between Israel uh, that was agreed on March 1979. And 18 Arab nations denounced the treaty. So here was an exception with President Sadat, Mr. Armstrong had met with President Sadat, 
and also with the Prime Minister of Israel in those days. It had a, the G3 was one of the rare privileges of flying from Cairo directly to uh, Jerusalem, I believe it was, or, or Tel Aviv. And that was a very special uh, time. But just one year later, October 6, 1981, the day before atonement, President Sadat was assassinated while reviewing a military parade. So today we still have the conflicts, of course, in Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, many other areas in the Middle East with Iran still uh, threatening to uh, produce nuclear weapons. But on this day, and not too many years from now, instead of a Yom Kippur war, instead of an assassination, liberty is going to be proclaimed to the world by the new king, Jesus Christ. And the great enemy, the adversary of the world, will be put away, incarcerated, imprisoned for a thousand years. The God of this world will be put away. So today begins, marks the beginning of the world becoming at one with God. I'll repeat that. Today marks the beginning of the world becoming at one with God. Why? Because Satan and his demons will be locked up and put away. The sacrifice of Christ will be available for the world's sins, which it's not now. Why not? John 6.44, no man can come to thee except the Father draw him, and I will raise him up the last day. Salvation is not being offered to the world. But on this day of atonement in the future, Christ's sacrifice will be available to the world. And liberty will be proclaimed throughout the land. And God's royal family, we are God's royal family, the first brutes born into the kingdom at the last trumpet will begin to re-educate the world. The world needs re-education. Someone asked me a little while ago, uh, some thoughtful, well, what, Mr. Ames, do you want to do in, in tomorrow's world? I said, re-educate the world. So one of the major responsibilities we will have, we are being trained as kings, priests, and judges, and we'll learn more about that, of course, at the Feast of Tabernacles. So on this day of atonement, we humble ourselves in preparation for the world to come, in preparation for God to rule the earth. So let's consider the meaning of the day and some lessons this day teaches us. The title of the sermon today is Day of Atonement Lessons. If you go on membersLCG.org, which I've encouraged you to do before, and go to the search bar on the right and type in the word atonement, you'll find many different messages and resources available to you on that subject. So when you go home this afternoon, you might want to do a research on members.LCG.org and type in the word atonement. And there you will find listed... Atonement 2020, the good news about the Day of Atonement. These are either sermons or articles. Atonement 2017, Christ is our Atonement High Priest. Atonement 2015, delight in the Day of Atonement. And then lessons from the Day of Atonement by Dr. Douglas Winnale is actually a Living Church News article, September, October uh, 2010. Atonement, 
uh, beginning, sons of light. And then the sacrifices of the Day of Atonement and the Holy Days. And then another article, LCN, uh, by Mr. Wally Smith, From Trumpets to Atonement. He gave a sermon on that subject as well. That's the September-October 2018 LCN. So in today's sermon, we have these resources, and I hope you are making uh, taking advantage of those resources that are available to you. So today, let's consider seven uh, atonement lessons. Number one. Satan will be put away for a thousand years. Now, if you'll turn to the Day of Atonement chapter, I know you know what is the Day of Atonement chapter. Not Leviticus 23, Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, it talks about, of course, the two goats. Aaron was a high priest, and he had to give an offering for himself and uh, get prepared for the... Ceremony of the two goats, Leviticus 16 and verse 5. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats, a sin offering and a ram as a burn offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself or his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the eternal of the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one for the, the eternal and the other for the azazel. The Hebrew word is azazel. Scapegoat is a wrong word. It came from the idea that this, gape, this goat escaped, and so it became scapegoat. And so it's kind of ironic. Satan wants to be... Labeled as a scapegoat, in other words, an undeserving blame. Though it's uh, it's incorrect to be a scapegoat at all. It's the azazel, and I just you know you just go on your cell phone and look up azazel. And Miriam Webster says it's an evil spirit. Uh, Miriam Webster even put it up as an evil spirit, which surprised me. Uh, but yes, azazel. I think in the Hebrew it just means uh, uh, being uh, in the wilderness or or separated. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, the Azazel, And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat, verse 10, but the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be present, preserved alive, presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and let it go as a scapegoat or as, a, as the azazel into the wilderness so it doesn't die. Uh, some individuals tried to say, well, that means Christ. It's, it, it, they're both uh, symbolize Christ. Well, no. The goat that goes in the wilderness does not shed its blood. The one, of course, the one for Christ shed his blood for us. And uh, verse 6, 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. So, again, this is for the atonement for Israel, uh, end of verse 17, verse 20. And then he who has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar shall bring the live goat. Verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by a head of a suitable man. 
the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities in an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So we realize, and we'll turn to Revelation 20 here in a minute to show, of course, that's putting Satan away for a thousand years, and he's going to be in the abyss uh, for a thousand years. But just before we go to Revelation 20, let's read uh, verse 29. Then shall uh, this shall be a statute forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no, do no work at all. So I told my wife, no, honey, you, you, you don't need to prepare meals. You don't work and uh, prepare meals for us today. So you don't do that, that work. And you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. And then verse 21, 31, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest. Uh, so I hope some of you got some solemn rest today. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a very time-conscious person, and I realize, how do I slow time down? You want to slow, slow the time? Start fasting. That slows the time real fast. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And so we realize that many of our people, some of our people are afflicted uh, because of the, the coronavirus or afflicted because of other diseases or handicaps. Some are afflicted because of persecution. And uh, But this day, those who are healthy need to afflict themselves through fasting. And we had the sermon out last week by Mr. Ruddleson explaining the matter of fasting. So turn to Revelation, the 20th chapter, and we see that the Azazel, the goat that was sent to the wilderness, um, is going to be put away. Revelation, the 20th chapter. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And, of course, this is reflecting the Day of Atonement. So when we realize the sequence of events, as we did on the Feast of Trumpets, you realize you have the Feast of Trumpets, then nine days later, uh, the Day of Atonement. And the wedding takes place up in heaven on the Sea of Glass between Trumpets and Atonement. And then, of course, uh, chapter 19, you have the uh, Battle of Armageddon, uh, really, with the armies coming, and we will be the saints riding on white horses with Christ uh, to fight in Jerusalem. And uh, that's described in Zechariah, the 14th chapter as well. But here, verse 2 of uh, Revelation 20, He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, or the abyss, and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more uh, till the thousand years were finished. So again, it's very plain, not only Revelation 12, verse 9, but even this uh, another reference to the matter that he's deceiving the nations. And uh, you were just, if, if you were in the world, as I was, before coming into God's church, I wasn't raised a second-generation Christian, uh, we were deceived. I was deceived. And uh, I still, you know, 
well, I, I better not talk about, about my deceptions of, of religion, you know, being in a Protestant church and having the wrong concept, the wrong, wrong image of Christ. But thank God he's given us the correct uh, vision and revelation of the true Jesus Christ in the Bible. And uh, we read about that, of course, in the Gospels and, and uh, Revelation, the first chapter, what Jesus Christ looks like today, like the sun in its full strength. You couldn't look, look on him and, and live. So what takes place between uh, trumpets and atonement? Well, I just mentioned I won't turn there, but uh, Revelation, the 15th chapter, which we rehearsed on the day of trumpets, you have the seven last plagues. The seventh trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ rise and meet Christ in the air, and uh, those who are alive are changed in a twinkle of an eye. But then the then we go to the sea of glass for the wedding, and then we're in the temple. And then the seven last plagues, the angels go out with the plagues that are uh, the last plagues, and God is that. That is the total completion. The day of the Lord is seven trumpets, is God's judgments and the wrath of the Lamb on the on the nations. But then you have the seven last plagues, which is the completion. It's almost like the intense culmination of all the uh, anger and wrath that God has in the seven last plagues. Can you be angry? Well, it says be angry and sin, sin not there in Ephesians, the second chapter. And uh, it tells us in Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy in the forward or perverse mouth do I hate, God says. So the wrath of the Lamb is, of course, uh, during the day of the Lord and then the culmination of God's wrath of uh, the the battle of the great day of God Almighty, as it's called in Revelation, the 16th chapter. So you have those seven last plagues leading up to Armageddon, which is one of the seven last bowls that is poured out. And then the beast and the false prophet are thrown in the lake of fire. Chapter 19, the last two verses just before we read Revelation 20. And then we begin with Satan being put away. So, number one, Satan will be put away for a thousand years. Number two, we need to resist the devil and know his deceptions. Turn to 2 Corinthians, uh, the second chapter. 2 Corinthians, the second chapter. Uh, Satan has many different devices, and uh, I hope that you know how he capitalizes on your human nature so that you can fight him. Second Corinthians 2, and uh, starting with verse 10. Second Corinthians 2 and verse 10. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. Remember that First Corinthians was judgment on the Corinthian church because of the fornication and the immorality and the one person had to be disfellowshipped, and that one person repented. And then Paul is saying, okay, he's been forgiven, welcome back. And uh, the, uh, Paul was really a, a concerned that maybe he was too strong, but he, when he saw the fruits of repentance of the Corinthian church, he was glad that he wrote that strong letter, Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 1. 
And now for Corinthians, Second uh, Corinthians, uh, two verse ten. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if, uh, if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Or as the NRSV, uh, not ignorant of his designs. The NIV, ignorant of his schemes. The NLT, uh, not ignorant of his evil schemes. So he has his ways of deceiving us. Dexter Wakefield wrote an article in the LCN, uh, November, December 2012, uh, talking about Satan's deceptions. It was an article titled, Satan's Little Shop of Deceptions. Uh, Dexter Wakefield writes, quote, His is the most successful business in town. He never seems to grow tired of selling his wares. The inventory is unique. It consists exclusively of tailor-made deceptions, which are extremely useful to the customers. You see, these deceptions allow the customers to do whatever they want while still believing they are doing the right thing. There is a big market for that. Yeah, Satan is, uh, knows exactly your weaknesses and how he can tempt you. And you need to be aware of his devices so that you can fight them. So, actually, Satan actively deceives and we must be on guard. Revelation 20 and verse 8. And he will go out to deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. It's just, again, another confirmation of Satan's deceiving the nations, even at the end of the millennium. The, the billions of people who will grow up in the millennium will not have been tested by Satan. But at the end of the millennium, God is going to test them, and some are going to fail. And, of course, you know Revelation 12:9, Satan deceives the whole world. He has held the world captive in his deceptions. Do you know about Satan? He appears as an angel of light. So people can be easily deceived because he doesn't look like a, you know, a dragon with a tail and horns and so forth, the stereotypical image. He appears as an angel of light, it tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 14. And he's like a roaring lion also. I remember one minister giving a, uh, a story about uh, how lions hunt and how they, they will track their prey for a long time. First Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom may devour. And then we also have a telecast, Seven Satanic Deceptions. I'll mention a few of these uh, deceptions just in passing. Number, uh, I I shouldn't number them, number one is false doctrine. And that has not ever ceased ever since even the disruptions we've had in the churches of God. False doctrine is still circulating. I mean, we have people still believing that there's a flat earth. And we have people believing that the Azazel is Christ, that both the goats are, uh, represent Christ, which is not true. 
So we have false doctrine and, uh, and that, you know, another false doctrine that, that the w- wedding supper, that is the, uh, resurrection is on Pentecost rather than on the Feast of Trumpets. Thus so the last trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised. Not on Pentecost, uh, because between Pentecost and, and, uh, trumpets, as they say, we're up in the wedding of, with Christ for three and a half months. That can't be true because the very, the last seven last plagues, the first three or four, you're gonna die. Every, every living thing in the sea dies. All the water is poisoned. You can't live for almost just nine days, let alone three and a half months. So there are false doctrines floating around. And then there, of course, the one basic one human nature of lust. Uh, you know, what young men that, that lust after uh, young ladies' bodies. You know, it's just common. And you have to realize, no, what do you do as a young man when you, when you have that temptation? This is one simple exercise. I will demonstrate. You know, turn, you turn away. You just don't let your eyes look on it. I know it takes a lot of, a lot of discipline to do. But human nature is filled with vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed. And um, last Sabbath, Mr. Wesson uh, described the sins of the nations and how they, what happened in the last 20 years. His sermon was, uh, the fruits of 20 years since 9-11. And he stated that Satan is the master of distractions. Uh, that's one of the quote-unquote, quotable quotes I wrote down from his sermon. Satan is the master of distraction. Not only deception, but distraction. Distracting us from our main purpose of walking in the righteous ways of God. And there are all kinds of distractions. And we have to judge ourselves uh, do I allow myself uh, to watch the Carolina Panthers football game? Yes, I, I allow myself to do that, uh, but I, I make sure I'm giving myself permission to do that. And uh, because I make, I felt, sometimes I felt guilty. And uh, God says, if you feel guilty, He'll even let you know what the reason is. And you, in the long, in the past, not more recently, but in the past, I felt guilty. Why do I feel guilty? Because I watched too much television and didn't read the Bible. But God revealed me, oh, that's your problem. And so we have to again beware that Satan uses the deception of lust and distraction and deception. There's another, I'll just mention them without numbering them, uncontrolled anger. Pride, vanity, and arrogance. Lying is another deception that Satan uses. Evil thoughts. And then you have the occult and false dreams and visions. I know as some of our ministers have had someone say, well, Mr. Ames, I saw Jesus in a dream last night. Well, what did he look like? Oh, he had this beautiful long hair, and I said, no, no, you didn't see Jesus. That was a false image of Jesus you had. So Satan uses false dreams and visions and the occult. And you think the Harry Potter books are sold millions and millions with children getting involved with the occult. It's just abominable. And then uh, he uses uh, the lack of faith. 
and bitterness. Uh, so many uh, types of deceptions that he uses. Turn to Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So they're wonders, all right, but they're lying wonders. And with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And I hope that's a characteristic of all of our converted brethren here is a love of the truth. You love the truth. And you give thanks for the truth because the world is totally deceived because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who not believe the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. So you know Revelation 13, 13, the false prophet will call down fire from heaven. They'll say, oh, that's just like Elijah did. You know, here's, here's God's prophet. So there are going to be people that are just deceived. And we have to draw near to God. And as we heard even in the offertory message, the Day of Atonement is a time to draw near to God. So turn to James, the fourth chapter. I think you know this, these verses by heart. James 4. Mr. Armstrong used to call these the two initiatives. Uh, James, the fourth chapter. And starting with uh, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You have to resist. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The first initiative, resist the devil. second initiative, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So on this day, we also examine ourselves and ask the questions, what do I need to change in my life? Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So lesson number two is that we need to draw near to God. That is, we need to resist the devil and be aware of his deceptions. We have the uh, telecast Overcoming Satan uh, by Dr. Meredith and Seven Satanic Deceptions. So, brethren, Satan goes about as a roaring lion. He appears as an angel of light. So we need to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Lesson number two, know Satan's deceptions, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Lesson number three, the world will be set free. Be set free from Satan. Turn to Second Timothy, the second chapter. Second Timothy, the second chapter. The world is in captivity right now. But as we heard in the offertory message, the world will have the opportunity to be converted, saved, and reconciled to God have the opportunity to accept the very sacrifice of Christ. Second Timothy 2, and starting in verse 24. 
And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Mr. Armstrong wrote a booklet called A World Held Captive. And certainly, as we've seen already in Revelation and several other references, that he has deceived the whole world. And it is a world that is held captive. Mr. Armstrong wrote in the beginning of that booklet, I'll give you a quote from that booklet, quote, You live in a world of awesome progress, but paradoxically of appalling evils. Why? It's a world held captive, deceived into loving its captivity, deliverance from kidnap and deception, human discontent, suffering, and death hasten nearer. World peace, happiness, and joy are just around the corner, end of quote. So Satan is called the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. He's called the prince of the power of the air, as you know, in Ephesians 2 and verse 2. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So let's take one more uh, example here in Revelation, the 16th chapter of how Satan is captivated the world and will in the future the power that he has over the nations. Revelation 16. Of course, Revelation 16 includes the seven last plagues. Revelation 16, and we'll start with uh, verse 14. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. It is a world held captive. The kings of the world, of the earth, and of the whole world. And then he says, and then verse 15, an admonition. Behold, I am coming as a thief, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And they gather them together at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. I hope you've written, uh, seen the book Armageddon and, and beyond. So, number three, the world that is held captive is going to be freed. And we saw in Revelation 20 and verse 3 that he will deceive the nations no longer. So for a thousand years, the nations will be free from Satan's captivity and from his deceptions. But here's this wonderful pronouncement in Leviticus 25. We'll return to Leviticus 25 and verse A. Wonderful, one of the wonderful meanings of the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 25. I uh, hope you have it marked in your Bible. Leviticus 25 and verse 8. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourselves, seven times seven years. 
And the time of the seventh Sabbath of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. But what is this trumpet for? You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all the land. Verse 10. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. What a wonderful announcement is going to be taking in the future when Christ returns on the Day of Atonement, that liberty will be pronounced throughout the world. So lesson number three, the world will be set free. The blood of Christ will be available as an atoning sacrifice for the world at that time. Lesson number three, the world will be set free. Lesson number four, the second exodus begins. The great second exodus will gather captives from all over the world, and they will travel to the Holy Land. Even the millennial chapter, you'll turn to the millennial chapter. There are many, of course, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, but turn to Isaiah the 11th chapter. And here you have a reference to the second exodus. But the first exodus, of course, was Moses and the Israelites coming out of Egypt in 1446 B.C. But this is a different exodus. Isaiah 11 and verse 11. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. Verse 12, he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah. So we realize in the Great Tribulation, it's not only the house of Jacob, but it's also the house of Judah that is going to be punished in the Great Tribulation. But he will gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So those who survive the Great Tribulation, uh, God is going to start this great second exodus. Turn to Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter. Jeremiah 23. Actually, this deserves a whole sermon on the second exodus. I know Randy Gregory back in Austin gave one many, many years ago. It was very memorable. So to uh, Jeremiah, did I say Jeremiah 16? Jeremiah 23. Oh, because while we're there, we'll want to go to Jeremiah 16. But Jeremiah 23 and uh, verse 7. Jeremiah 23, uh, verse 7. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Eternal, that they shall no longer say, as the Eternal lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Eternal lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country, not Egypt, and from all the countries where I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. So turn back to uh, Jeremiah 16 as well. Uh, Jeremiah 16 
and uh, make sure I get that reference. Verse 13, Jeremiah 16, and verse 13. Therefore I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you shall serve other gods day and night where I will not show you, where I will not show you favor, that is, during the great tribulation. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Eternal, that it shall be no more said the Eternal lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but the Eternal lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back in their land, which I gave to their fathers. And here's the interesting thing, you know, after World War II, uh, there were some very loyal Japanese soldiers that did not know the war had ended. They were some out in the out back in some of the South Sea Islands. And 20 or 30 years later, uh, people would find these loyal Japanese soldiers th- thought that World War II was still ongoing. And I just think of this where God will have some of his people like that from the Great Tribulation. He's going to send fishermen and hunters to find them. So he goes on to say, verse 16, Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Eternal, and they shall fish them, and afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt for them every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways, and they are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And first I will pay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with character carcasses, and the best detestable and abominable idols. But God will rescue those after many years. Let's turn to Ezekiel, the 36th chapter. Ezekiel 36. Uh, many more. I not, should not spend too much time on this. With many beautiful uh, scriptures and references of the second Exodus. But here, uh, Ezekiel 36, and uh, verse 24 when they're, all the Israelites are coming back from captivity. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from your idols. Yes, today is the beginning of a one atonement for the world and for those coming out from the Great Tribulation. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. So God is going to bring them back. They will be repentant, as it shows in verse 31. Then you shall remember your evil way and your deeds that you were, were, were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. But they will build the ruined places, it says in verse 33, and they'll become like a garden of Eden, uh, verse 35. And that's what we rejoice in the Feast of Tabernacles. So there is that great second exodus. And you realize that of the... Millions and millions of 
the house of Israel and the house of Judah that go into captivity, how many will survive? You know the, I won't turn there, Ezekiel 5, verse 12, you know the a prophecy of thirds? Well, I guess I will read that, Ezekiel 5 and verse 12. One third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And one third of you shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to the winds, and I will drive out a sword after them. So one third are going to die by pestilence and famine, another third by the sword, and another third go into captivity. But how many of those are going to survive? Turn to Amos, the fifth chapter, Amos 5, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Amos, the fifth chapter, then verse 2, Amos 5 and verse 2. Talking about a lamentation. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord Eternal, The city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. Only ten percent. And that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. So it appears that of all the millions of British and American-descended peoples, only 10% are going to survive, but they will be in the second exodus. So we'll be thankful that there is going to be a second exodus. In fact, let's turn to Isaiah 27, um, Isaiah the 27th chapter, and here we find the announcement of their rescue. Isaiah 27 and verse 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, you children of Israel. That is the second exodus. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown that will come. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria. So God is going to rescue those uh, 10% out of Israel, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and they shall worship the Eternal in the holy mount of Jerusalem. Well, you might think this was the last trumpet rather than the Day of Atonement trumpet, but Mr. John O'Gwyn writes in the Revelation Unveiled booklet on page 42, Just as the Feast of Trumpets represents the time of God's intervention and judgment, so the Day of Atonement, coming nine days later, pictures a time when Satan will be banished and made to bear his responsibility for sin. The fulfillment of what this day symbolized is described in Revelation 20, verse 1 through 3. Most likely, the action that is described in the book of Revelation as occurring between blowing of the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11:15 and the putting away of Satan in Revelation 20, verse 2, will take place in a nine-day span between trumpets and atonement. And I also referred you to uh, Mr. Wally Smith's article, From Trumpets to Atonement, what takes place in that uh, period of time. That's the LCN September-October 2018. Mr. O'Gwyn continues, 
Satan's banishment will represent the liberation of mankind. This is the fulfillment of the symbolism of the ancient year of Jubilee, when freedom was proclaimed, Leviticus 25, verses 9 and 10. Note that the Jubilee began on the Day of Atonement, the day that symbolized Satan's banishment. At this point, the remnants of all 12 tribes of Israel will begin to be gathered from the captivity to the land of Israel, Isaiah chapter 27, verses 1 through 13. So we're going to be thankful that there is a second exodus and that God will begin to revive the whole culture of truth with the starting with 144,000, as he mentions there in Revelation, the seventh chapter, of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's very inspiring to realize lesson number four, the second exodus begins on the Day of Atonement. Lesson number five, nations will be reconciled to one another. Uh, We just uh, heard about some of the conflicts that have taken place, and we've had in our telecast the references to the genocide, the Holocaust of World War II, and the atrocities of Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia, uh, Kosovo, just to name a few. And then you realize all people are going to be judged guilty. How can these nations that have been fighting against one another be reconciled? Because they are all guilty, Romans 3:23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So they can't blame their enemy for their problems. They have to repent and realize you are guilty regardless of your enemy. And you have to repent. And once you repent and are reconciled to God, then you can be reconciled to others. And so we find, of course, in Romans 5, verses 10 and 11. Romans 5, verse 10. I'll just read it. You can turn to it if you want. You should probably have that marked in your Bible. Romans 5, verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. But now, Romans 5, verse 11. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So once people have repented and are reconciled to God, they can be reconciled to one another. That's the Day of Atonement lesson. Isaiah, the 19th chapter. We re- rehearse this during the days of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles every year. But again, it's, it's a wonderful promise of the fruits of Day of Atonement that once those nations have repented, accepted the sacrifice of Christ, they can be reconciled to one another. And we find that reconciliation here in Isaiah 19, verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come to Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. Verse 24 of Isaiah 19. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, 
whom the Eternal of hosts will bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So here are former enemies that will be reconciled, and God will bless them. So we have that wonderful promise in the future that nations will be reconciled to one another. And uh, Isaiah 11th chapter, I should have, uh, I don't know if we read that. No, we did not read that, but I'll uh, return there. Isaiah 11 gives another example of reconciliation of nations. Uh, Isaiah 11 and verse 12. Isaiah 11 verse, of course, this is a, we already, I guess I already did read this, uh, but I didn't read uh, verse 13. Uh, talking about the second exodus and uh, verse 13 of Isaiah 11. Also, the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah. So there is going to be reconciliation. And Judah shall not harass Ephraim but they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines towards the west. Together they shall plunder the people of Egypt. So again, God says there will be a highway for the remnant of his people, verse 16, who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. So again, referring to the second exodus. But here, former enemies will be reconciled. So lesson number five, nations will be reconciled to one another. And under the king of kings, the world will have genuine world peace. So we talk about world peace, and, but all it is is rhetoric and has never really been accomplished. Number six is a lesson for us during the days of unleavened bread, and that is walk humbly with God. Lesson number six, walk humbly with God. So today we're afflicting ourselves through fasting and humbling ourselves before God. So turn to Leviticus 23. Um, we had a reference this last week from uh, Mr. Ruddleson, and it's covering this, so I won't co- spend too much time on this. Leviticus 23, and of course the instructions for the Day of Atonement. And starting on verse 27, also the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire or to the Lord. Well, obviously, we're not offering a fire by fire because we're not the Leviticus priesthood. But um, And you shall do no work, verse 28, on that same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the eternal your God. And uh, verse 32, On the ninth day of the month at even, from evening to evening, shall celebrate your Sabbath. So seven days you shall offer an offering. Although oh, that getting back onto the Feast of Tabernacles. So you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So he even uses the word celebrate uh, here referring to the Day of Atonement in verse 32. So again, we humble ourselves and we examine ourselves during the Passover, but this is a time for self-examination as well. And uh, again, some of our brethren are afflicted not just from fasting, but as I already mentioned, afflicted from various diseases, even the coronavirus or 
uh, from other diseases, handicaps and persecutions and harassments and uh, other, other problems and trials. But this is a good time to ask the question, what do I need to change in my life? Now, I don't know if you ask that question very much, but uh, I've, I've asked that question myself and I uh, today, this morning, and I, I have identified uh, some changes to make in my life. That's a good question to ask. What characteristics, what attitudes, what approaches do I need to modify or completely change? Because sometimes we... We go along and say, I'm going to make, you know, this little kind of change, but are there very fundamental internal structural changes that need to be made? Maybe, you know, even changing routines. Routines are good. You can do things quickly and efficiently and, and honor God and doing things decently in order. But maybe there are some routines or habits or ways um that you have in your life that maybe you need to face up to and maybe maybe I do need to change in my life. Of course, Mr. Rod McNair gave the sermon a couple of weeks ago on take one step. We have so many different things. I have so many things to overcome, and that sermon really helped me because I can only take one step at a time. I can't solve all the problems and all the projects I need to overcome in, uh, you know, just one day or one year. He said he'd been working on one project for three years or so. So we take one step at a time, but we have to make those commitments to change and identify them. One other question you might ask is, of the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit given in Galatians 5, what ones am I lacking? What ones of the nine fruits of God's Spirit might you be lacking listed in Galatians, uh, the fifth chapter? And we heard, of course, in uh, Dr. Wernale's uh, admonition for the world ahead uh, uh, summary and commentary to be lights in the world, to be lights at the Feast of Tabernacles and ask ourselves what kind of lights are we because I, I know I have changes to make in my life. So as we afflict ourselves, we examine ourselves and we have to dedicate ourselves to be more zealous toward God and towards Christ and, of course, to complete the work. And we had the very encouraging um, comments and statistics about the work in the offertory message, that God is blessing his work. Now, when we humble ourselves, the Hebrew word is anah, and which means uh, simply the same word as in Leviticus 23:32, meaning to humble oneself or afflict uh, oneself. I won't turn there, but David said in Psalm 35, verse 13, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned unto my own bosom. That's Psalm 35, verse 13. Dr. Meredith wrote this commentary about the Day of Atonement. Everyone needs forgiveness because everyone has sinned. We urge you deeply, examine your life. Jesus and the apostles commanded everyone to repent and believe the gospel. One major emphasis of the true gospel is that our forgiveness is made possible through the sacrifice of Christ and his shed blood.
on the Day of Atonement, we deeply consider all that this day pictures in regard to our personal lives now as well as in tomorrow's world when peace will be established and humanity will be at one with God. So, brethren, let's ask ourselves, are we seeking first the kingdom of God above all else? Are we striving to overcome? Are we seeking to obey God completely and totally? Are we asking God to write on our hearts and minds His laws as a part of the new covenant? Let's turn to... I'll just read Micah 6 and verse 8. They're going to be turning to Isaiah the 58th chapter. Micah 6 verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the eternal require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So walking humbly with God is a way of life. It means fasting throughout the year and not just on atonement. Isaiah, the 58th chapter, we had uh, this read by Mr. Ruddleson, a sermon at, uh, last week. Uh, really, I would like to encourage you to read the whole chapter of Isaiah 58 because it's a matter of how you fast and what, are the, what is the real kind of fast. But we'll just read verse 6 of Isaiah 58 through verse 8. Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness. You know, are you doing that? How are you doing that? This work is loosening the bonds of wickedness. When people who read our literature, as we heard in some of the comments, and they are turned to righteousness, they've been in bondage, and now they are free from that bondage. And this work is doing that. Of course, God has to call them, but the gospel goes out as a witness to all nations, and some of them are responding. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And there are those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And this work is communicating the truth to many people who are hungering for wanting the reason why, wanting the answer to the question, why? Why the troubles in this world? Why are things going wrong in my life? And they're getting the answers. And that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, and you see the naked that cover him, and do not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the eternal shall be your rear guard. And so, yes, we realize that God gives us the opportunity to humble ourselves and draw closer to him on this day of atonement and to examine himself. Dr. Meredith wrote a commentary, Should Christians Observe the Day of Atonement? He wrote, On the Day of Atonement, Christians humble themselves before God remembering the awesome sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, whose blood atoned for our sins. The Hebrew word atonement, kapur, K-A-P-A-R, kapar, literally means to cover over. Our death penalty has been paid for, and our sins have been buried or covered over. So, brethren, on this day of atonement, 
let's deeply examine ourselves and appreciate deeply the sacrifice of Christ, which we do it on Passover, but atonement is a day to have that same deep appreciation. And to look forward to the time then the nations also will have access to that same sacrifice. So lesson number six, walk humbly with God. Lesson number seven, God's kingdom will reign. We already saw in Revelation 20 and verse 3 that Satan will be put away for a thousand years. And then what's the next verse? And the saints will reign for a thousand years. So the day, the, the day of atonement when Satan is put away, that begins our reign on earth as well. Of course, we'll be in heaven and Christ must put away all his enemies and there'll be a transition time during the millennium. The first three and a half years of the millennium are transition time. I'll be giving a sermon on that at the feast called, again, Establishing the Kingdom because Christ will have to put down his enemies. Egypt will not go up to the feast the first year. Implied they won't go up the second year. And then you have Gog and Magog and Revelation, Ezekiel 39, come down to the holy city. Yes, they do at the end of the millennium, but the one reference in Ezekiel 39 is at the beginning of the millennium, where there are walled cities, unwalled cities at the beginning of the millennium, and they're putting away the dead bodies for seven, seven months and burning the weapons for seven years. Well, that will be at the beginning of the millennium. So there's a transition period. God's kingdom will reign, and it will begin with us. In the United States, we have a pledge of allegiance to the flag. It goes like this. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Peoples from all over the world have come to America because they thought they could find liberty and justice for all. We thank God for the liberties we have been experiencing, and those liberties are being eroded as time goes on. But we look forward to the time when real justice and real liberty will be pronounced for the whole world. We look forward to the time when the world will observe the Day of Atonement, And we look forward to the time when God's kingdom will guarantee genuine liberty and justice for all. So lesson number seven for the Day of Atonement is God's kingdom will reign. We look forward to the day when the arch deceiver is put away and placed in the abyss for a thousand years. And we look forward to the time when Satan's demons will be locked up and put away We look forward to the time when the sacrifice of Christ will be made available for the world's sins. It's not available now because God is not calling them. But the day of atonement in the future, Christ's sacrifice will be available to the whole world. And liberty will be proclaimed throughout the land. We read in Leviticus 25, verse 10. God's royal family, the first fruits, will be re-educating the world 
We'll learn more about that at the Feast of Trumpets, a Feast of Tabernacles. So we look forward to the time when atonement and reconciliation will be available to the whole world. Let's meditate on the lessons of the Day of Atonement. There are more than the seven I've given today, but number one was Satan will be put away for a thousand years. Number two, the world will be set free. Number three, nations will be reconciled to one another. Four, the second exodus begins. And then we need to resist devil, the devil and know Satan's deceptions. We need to walk humbly with God. And we look forward to the time when God's kingdom will reign. So, brethren, let's commit ourselves to overcoming and changing our lives. Let's examine ourselves on this Day of Atonement. Let's appreciate the great sacrifice of Christ and His blood that covers our sins. Let's look forward to the time when the whole world will keep the Day of Atonement, when Christ the King will give that announcement to the world, proclaim liberty throughout to the land and all the inhabitants thereof.